Hello everyone and welcome back to the review of Democracy, the discussion platform of Central European University's Democracy Institute. My name is Lucy Hunter, I am an editor at RevDem, and today it is my great pleasure to welcome our new guest, Joachim Haberlin. Hello Joachim and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, it's a great pleasure talking to you Lucy. It's a really great pleasure to have you here. A few words about Joachim. Joachim Haberlin is a historian of modern European history and a writer primarily focused on protest movements in post-war Europe and the refugee crisis. Today, we will be discussing his latest book called Beauty is in the Street, Protest and Counterculture in Post-War Europe, which recounts the diverse protest movements that emerged primarily between 1968 to 1989. Now, I really enjoyed reading the book and uh, learned a lot from it, actually. But before we dive deeper into its content, I would like to start on a more personal note. In uh, multiple parts of the book, you mentioned that you were personally involved in uh, some of the causes and movements that you discuss. So could you tell us more about your personal history of activism? What impact did it have on your life and what did you learn from it? And perhaps, if at all, how did it influence your decision to write this book in the first place? Okay, um, starting with a personal question. Um, I'll try to keep this short because I sort of don't want to you know, brag about myself. And, you know, when I was younger, there was a saying, Anna and Arthur keep their mouths shut when it comes to talking about activism, because it's not me who's you know, mattering here, though I do include, you know, parts, uh, sort of, I, I do allude to my own um, sort of involvement in, in, in protest movements. So when I was younger, I guess, so before I moved to Chicago to do my PhD in the early 2000s, I was involved in you know, typical left-wing activism, I guess, um, things like protests against neo-Nazis, against deportation policies, but it was also in a way part of a sort of lefty subculture with concerts, with parties in not in squatted uh, buildings, but within uh, sort of lefty youth uh, centers, you know, having lots and lots of long discussions um, about whatever kind of weird theory was on work back then. So I sort of knew that sort of aspect of how people, including myself, can get very personally, very deeply involved in these scenes. At a later age, in 2015, I became a bit by accident uh, involved in supporting refugees, which comes through in uh, one of the chapters in the book. I believe it's chapter five or so. And that was a very different kind of activism, a very sort of less political, well, less radical politically, but perhaps, perhaps not, maybe a question mark behind that, but less of a sort of scene, less of a lefty scene activism, more of really engaging in solving practical problems, which gave me a very different angle, I guess. So how does that, or how did that influence um, my book? Not so much really perhaps writing the book precisely, but it, it influenced, it very surely in, influenced my more general interest in left-wing politics, left-wing activism um, in my academic work, actually, you know, already in the works that I've done before, which was focusing on the flashback politics in interwar Europe. So there's a red thread, um, I guess, through my uh, work. It's a perspective that I'm taking that is, has a bit of a sympathetic perspective. I do feel, you know, I won't tell any secret saying that I, my, my basic sympathies are broadly speaking on the left, um, all, often in many ways very critical as well, but that's sort of my general leaning. I don't think there's any sort of doubt about that probably. And I guess what, what really fascinated me, you know, from my own involvement, but also from where I started studying things, are these 
attempts not just to criticize you know current policies and so on but to try something out and to create spaces that can be different that can you know that won't ever be free of power but or something like that that won't be sort of the promised land of solidarity and freedom everyone knows that that you know these simply don't exist quite but they are attempts to you know at, at least do things differently um in communes in these lefty uh, youth scientists but also in the solidarity movement with people fleeing to europe and i think the spirit of experimenting but also of practical solidarity of questioning of constantly questioning decisions and ideas i think that was and that still is something that deeply fascinates me and in a way that influenced i guess how i how i approached uh, the book I mean, I think it's uh, quite normal for most of us researchers to have some kind of bias when it comes to what we are researching, which is often, you know, influenced by our personal experiences and lived experiences as well. So research, yeah, often sort of reflects, you know, these personal interests uh, of ours. So I suppose, you know, this whole idea about creating a better world directly influenced the title of your book as well in uh, many respects, because you're really trying to sort of show these alternative realities and how we as well could make the world um, a better place. Now, let's turn our attention to the content uh, of your book. So it covers a greatly symbolic period in the study of social movements, I would say, because it ranges from this tumultuous wave of protests uh, in multiple European countries in 1968 and then goes all the way to the fall of the Iron Curtain in uh, 1989. So in a way, really, you know, covering quite a wide range, wide scope of uh, 30 years. So I wanted to ask, in terms of methodology, why did you decide to focus specifically on this period? And how did you choose your geographical case studies? Um, yes. So when you introduced the book and said it covers, you know, the roughly 30 years from 68 to 89, I was a second, a tiny, tiny little bit unhappy, I have to admit. Because right, 68 and 89 do stand out as pivotal moments um, in the struggles for creating a better world um, in post-war Europe. That's absolutely true. And perhaps 89 stands out even more so than 68. And the book does indeed focus uh, very much on the 1970s and 1980s, when we do see a plethora of new forms of you know, struggling for that better world, but also of experimenting with building that better world in the here and now, rather than waiting for a, a sort of revolution, big revolution that changes everything and that uh, sort of ushers in the new promised land of freedom. That said, it's actually important for me to, to stress that the 1950s weren't the kind of quiet and boring and sort of politically quiet uh, period that they are all uh, often presented as. There were countercultural movement, there were political uh, oppositional movements in the 1950s into the early 60s, um, before 68. Think of the situation as international, think of the provost in Amsterdam, that's the 19, well, starting in the 1950s with the situation as international. Um, but also think of, um, like the, in German, uh, the Halbstarken riots, so righteous teenagers who, who challenged the established order. So it wasn't all, the 50s weren't all just quiet, and it's important to keep that sort of prehistory of 68, I think, in mind, prehistory that goes back further, one could argue, but definitely doesn't just start, 68 doesn't happen out of nowhere. And similarly, 89 is not simply an ending point. Many of the thematic chapters point into the present, actually. If you think about environmental politics, if you think about struggles against racism or um, 
the women's movement that in a way anticipated or, or paved the way not first for the for the gay movement quite literally um, but also I guess for for current day queer politics so to come to your question why I picked that period of time the 70s I think um, well they stand out in two ways first because it's really a moment of tremendous experimenting and that fascinated me um, and I think in a way the the space for experimenting has closed to some extent at least um, Perhaps we can come back to that later, what has sort of changed by now. And second, I think, again, in the 70s, or really coming out of the 68 moment, a lot of the current day protest movements, um, again, things like anti-racism, internationalist politics, um, queer, the queer politics, sexual politics, we can all, we can trace them uh, back at least to this moment of, of the uh, long 1960s, early 1970s, of course, we can always go back further. You know, that's what historians always like to do. But I think the decisive moment was really the post-68 moment, not least because leftist politics broke with this sort of communist-style politics that had dominated very much uh, sort of conventional leftist politics. Um, when it comes to geographical case studies, above all, I wanted to cover a wide range of places, and I wanted to bridge the gap or the divide between Eastern and Western Europe. That was really important to me because often you get discussions of protest movements that are you know mostly about western europe or western europe and the us and then some stuff on eastern europe on, on the communist east as if these were two utterly separate worlds and i think that is simply not true people read each other to some extent at least easterners more than westerners than the other way around but if you look into sort of the the habits the cultural habits the cultural politics um the styles of music the styles of dressing and so on you can see many similarity right punk for example was a, a thing a movement a sort of subcultural movement that crossed the iron curtain um so we're concerned with um, environmental politics you do find that in the eastern bloc peace movement you do find that in the eastern uh, bloc and so on so really covering the continent as a whole was the goal that being said as you should say that there are countries that are sort of being left out. I don't think I'm discussed Greece or Spain or Portugal at any um, length. You know, if you read reviews of the book right now, people, some people at least complain that I don't mention sort of a couple more British examples that I surely could have included. So there's what I want to say is that there's a lot more in terms of protest movements, places that uh, one could uh, cover. In a way, I, I picked uh, what I thought were particularly interesting and revealing examples of people struggling for that better word but above all it once again experimenting with um new ideas with new ways of, of organizing their life their work life their private lives and so on and at the end of the day it was a bit of a gut feeling which stories are interesting uh, to tell um which stories i found in the material um and to, to you know to have a bit of a of a uh, look at a microscopic look at the small details that are perhaps you know revealing when it comes to you know how precisely people try to build that better world in their everyday lives and what problems they encountered doing so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every single reader will think that their own country hasn't been represented properly, right? I was feeling the same, to be honest. Um, coming from Eastern Europe, I actually wish that you dived even deeper into the region to really sort of create the bridges that you are speaking about between the East and the West. And I don't know, even maybe mention some more specific examples of for instance, the fact that one of the first peace protest marches was actually held in Poland. So it wasn't, you know, just in uh, Western Europe, 
even in the more like repressive part of the continent, such things were somehow still happening, uh, despite the country having a military regime. And yeah, all of all of these other things and similar examples from other countries as well. At the same time, though, I did really appreciate that you actually focused on uh, sort of both of the sides of the continent, because usually when we speak about 1968 or so, it's usually, you know, France, Germany, maybe the UK, but often not so much else. So I really enjoyed this sort of wider, wider lens um, that you used in your book. Now, I would like to ask one question related to your theoretical approach. We covered methodology, so let's move on to theory. Many of the phenomena you discuss uh, in your book have already been studied at great length by social movements or cultural studies scholars, be it the emergence of the so-called new social movements in the 1970s, the concepts of prefiguration and radical imaginary, lifestyle politics, or the importance of non-material values for public mobilizations from the 1970s onwards. However, in your book, you do not seem to engage much with this conceptual vocabulary, nor with the sort of wider theoretical underpinnings of, uh, of these fields. So I wanted to ask you, what was your approach to theory while working on this book? And what would you see as the book's added value in uh, comparison to other studies on the same subject? Okay, um, theory. Well, first, it's a, a multi-layered question, I think, that requires a bit of a longer answer. First, maybe let me really note the genre of the book, uh, right? It's a trade book aiming at a general audience, uh, not so much at uh, specialists in, in the field. I do hope that they would learn something from it because I cover lots of ground and lots of different examples that might not be familiar to experts and they might find it useful for teaching. But, you know, the genre of the book simply doesn't call for theory, to be honest. Um, I did, you know, approach protest movements specifically the West German alternative left of the 1970s, 80s, with a more theoretical mindset, talk, discussing their politics of emotions in, a, in an earlier uh, book. Having said that is a bit of an easy way out to point to the genre of the book. I also have to admit that I find some of the theoretical work that is done in the field, uh, how should I say, put that, not particularly inspiring, to be honest. Sometimes it doesn't seem to get to what I think is at least sort of crucial um, about these movements, and then I took the liberty of just deciding, okay, I uh, write my own stuff. I don't engage with stuff that I simply don't find particularly uh, inspiring. Something that I would recommend to anyone writing books, engage with stuff that you find inspiring and interesting. So the kind of new social movement stuff, as far as I know it, um, it seems to be more popular in the social sciences than in history, actually. You know, one thing that I, I once knew I frequently uh, read is that, you know, when discussing in the 1970s, that these were all single movement single issue movements. And I don't think, for example, this focus on you know what these movements were about, peace, directing the environment, fighting nuclear Armageddon and so on, this doesn't quite get first that activists saw connections between these different struggles and that they had a shared vision of a better world that you know that connected these different struggles. So I'm not particularly con convinced of that social movement approach, for example. Similarly, this lifestyle politics approach um, or that focuses on post-materialist post values it sometimes it seems to me denigrates lots of the activism I'm talking about to mere lifestyle that is not quite really political, as if there were two very different things: lifestyle on the one hand and the, the real politics um, on the other hand. And I think that's again not quite what's happening. What we can see, and I, I try to explain that in the book, is a radical redefinition of what politics is about. Right, that 
the private sphere that's often considered to be distinct from politics becomes profoundly political. It's about feelings, it's about bodies. And if you think about the kind of uh, spiritual politics in the sort of new age uh, line of thinking that sort of come up in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, it's even about how people relate to the natural world, to the universe as a whole. So I don't think it's these you know, concepts like lifestyle politics or post-materialist values don't quite grasp how fundamental a rethinking of the political map, if you will, this is that, that is happening here. Why, you know, at the moment when this kind of old class struggle politics, right? Um, we have to fight the bourgeoisie, the cap to overcome the capitalist world order, and um, with a sort of uh, whatever style revolution to uh, you know establish uh, socialism or whatever. And this is challenged and so sort of replaced by multiple but interconnected struggles that sort of try to create a better world by experimenting, but not by having this one huge revolution. And I think this sort of reshaping of leftist politics doesn't quite come through when I read at least most of these sort of more what you call theoretical approaches that, to be honest, I don't find very theoretically speaking inspiring. Um, so what's the added value? Um, it already brings me sort of to the question that is coming ahead, I think. What sort of make what, what makes the book different? What's perhaps the, the takeaway? There are some books, particularly by lefty historians, that in a way present these movements as role models for the present. Yeah, so it's sort of a, an argument or style of writing that so you look at these great protests in the past, let's take them as role models um, for taking to the streets again. And while I do admit that I write with a bit of sympathy for these protesting cultures, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to provide some sort of blueprint for successful protesting. The major point, takeaway point, where I hope the book is different than it, what it adds is that it might be an inspiration to imagine something, to imagine alternatives, to imagine or to, to keep dreaming in a way, um, but also to you know take a break and reflect on what's going wrong with these, uh, or what went wrong with these uh, movements, how they recreated the very power structures um, they wanted to create. Let me just maybe tell a bit of, an, of a short story because your podcast is called Review of Democracies, so I thought it might be fitting. In, the, in September, there was a study here in Germany making rounds uh, about right-wing populists, the uh, Alternative für Deutschland, Alternative uh, for Germany, and why people uh, vote for it. Um, so it's a German focus, but I think you could make the argument for sort of, you know, right-wing populist movements all across uh, the continent and in the US. And the author claimed that it's not a longing for some past that has never existed, some sort of imaginary past that makes people vote for these right-wing uh, parties, but what he called nihilist rage that emerged out of an inability to imagine anything better. And so this sort of ability to you know, dream, if you will, to politically dream and imagine something that could be different, I think that makes studying these protest movements worthwhile. So I guess that sort of, it's not a really theoretical takeaway, but for me, it's the, the crucial takeaways, you know, what actually can we learn by studying history? It's a very fundamental question that has been asked over and over again. And writing that book has really changed my perspective on that question because I'm getting more and more interested in how history um, can inspire me to imagine a different future. I think that's really beautiful. And actually, what was really important to me about your book was its accessibility, which is probably connected to the fact that you went uh, with publishing with a trade publisher. Firstly, in terms of the language which you use, I mean, I have shared the book with my husband and other people as well who are not, you know, specifically from 
the fields of history or social sciences, and they all found it very accessible, which was great. And secondly, I really appreciated the fact that you use, let's say, a more holistic approach when uh, looking at the topic. I think that it is very important to show not just what these movements did, but to really contextualize it. So showing how did they come about, how did they influence the present as well, etc. So the overarching themes of the personal is political in a way. And even though we look at lifestyles, maybe that has some wide um, political impact. It's something which really spoke to me when uh, when I was reading it. And yeah, I think this actually leads us to the next question, and that is the question of impact. Impact is something that keeps coming up all the time when studying social movements and protests uh, in general, because you know most people expect some kind of tangible result, and these are not always delivered or cannot even be delivered. So your primary focus in the book is on movements that, as you said, in one way or in another, try to make the world a better place, uh, try to imagine some alternatives, you know, offer different types of solutions to the issues of our time, raise awareness uh, of various issues and also consciousness of others, try to mobilize people and in a way basically prefigure some more equal and democratic societies in their actions, lifestyle choices, but also ways of thinking. So if we focus on the impact and uh, political dimension of these actions, would you say that the movements you discuss in your book were successful? Uh, success, you know, can be defined in whichever way you want it. And if so, if the answer is affirmative, then in what ways? Because I really feel like impact when discussing social sciences, but also generally speaking, is often so extremely limited in terms of examples. We often get stuck with these really big goals, you know, like, Oh, have the movements managed to change the government or influence the elections or had some other like really revolutionary outcome while in reality often these things are much smaller but not less important so i wanted us to reflect on this as well yeah um well first thanks for the you know complimenting on the book and sharing it with your husband and other people i'm very glad to hear that it is written in an accessible way but that's one thing that i try to do yeah as you said Questions of impact and success or failure are tricky ones and often answered in a bit of a boring fashion, to be honest. Right? If you think of, okay, the stated goals of movements, um, if the stated goal of six of the 68ers was to overthrow capitalism and consumer society, well, yes, then it's a failure. Okay, no brainer. On the other hand, if you look more closely at some of these smaller movements or less well-known movements, like... Um, urban activists, housing activists in, in Rome, they didn't accomplish something, right? They could stay in the houses they initially squatted or where they uh, illegally lowered their rents. Um, ultimately, some of them were actually buy, able to buy their apartments. Or if you look at some of these struggles of migrants, yes, they did get residence papers, some of them. Others were deported, others failed. So yes, some of these um, campaigns did succeed and they, they did accomplish what they set out to accomplish. Not the big revolution, but smaller goals. And then, of course, you might wonder, well, okay, if you are critical, if you're sort of, you know, on the radical side of the left, you might say, okay, yes, these uh, squatters or these pe people who are these housing activists in Rome that I discussed in one of the chapters, for example, they managed to lower rents and managed to ultimately buy their apartments. But did that do anything to elevate the overall housing situation in Rome? Well, perhaps not. So it's always a bit of a class half empty, half full uh, question. But I do think 
right? It's important to keep these successes in mind, um, that people did have an impact, that people did make a difference. And perhaps most importantly, the difference isn't quite measurable always. Um, I do recall, you know, there's one of the chapters discusses the famous case of Bühl, um, where German authorities planned to build a nuclear power plant in the early, um, late 1970s. Then activists uh, spotted the construction site and built a uh, sort of camp on that site. The interesting thing here is that so student activists, lefty student activists from nearby university cities, um, but also from, from all around the Republic, the Federal Republic of Germany, that is, uh, came to you know the usual suspects, if you will, but also local vendors, local peasants, uh, farmers, who felt that their livelihood would be endangered. And it was a strange moment when these lefty students, who talk all the left, all the sort of academic jargon of capitalism and whatever, met these local vendors who spoke local dialects and had you know socially speaking, rather, probably rather traditional uh, views, uh, you know, who were pretty religious, who believed in marriage and so on. And one of these activists uh, said, well, the actual success was that these two very different kinds of groups met and that, you know, we build friendships suddenly. We, you know, suddenly I, okay, I originally came from that region. I learned to speak the academic jargon when I started university. Okay, and now I started speaking the dialect a little bit again. Well, on the other hand, families, said, okay, we'll always look down on these students, these long-haired students. They look to us like terrorist supporters and we believe all these prejudices. And now that we actually met them, we understood they aren't. And it's these friendships that were the success, the words of one of these activists. And I think these sort of connections that people built and that have, that last long, some of the activists I've talked with on an earlier project, you know, they, these are still lasting friendships. And that's also a success. And perhaps that's what a democratic society needs. It needs to see people across different different sort of bubbles, you would say nowadays, connect with each other. And that happens really in the streets or in, in moments of activism. And yeah, I think that's, that's something that we should think about when it comes to impact and success that is often left out. And sometimes again, you know, these successes can be for a short moment, right? I think I, I discussed the squatting movement of 1980, 1981, most prominently in West Berlin, that some describe as a sort of, as a sort of short summer of anarchy when you could spend uh, your afternoons having breakfast on the on the roof of some of some squatted houses. Uh, must have been a beautiful summer. You know, it's a short moment of success. Or one of the participants of these um, of the happenings that Orange Alternative in Poland uh, organized sort of colorful, joyful happenings. She commented, so a woman who's just was just attending these happenings said, okay, you know, for a short moment, the sort of gray bottom of everyday life in communist Poland was interrupted and life didn't seem, you know, all depressing, just for a few hours maybe. And that's a success too. And I think that it's important to keep these successes in mind that are often, you know, ignored when we think about big tangible impacts uh, on, on policies that such movements might or might not have. I completely agree that often, you know, when researching these movements, it is literally about these tiny moments or reflections and snippets of alternative reality of either building these connections and friendships and communities trying, you know, to experiment with different lifestyles or just simply finding strategies to overcome fear, especially if you're based in an oppressive setting when doing anything, you know, which could be considered non-conformist can put you in great danger. However, apart from these liberating and freeing experiences, I think it is also nice that in the book you actually show the other side of the story as well, the other side of the coin, right, of 
how the students were often perceived as completely patronizing, coming to explain to the workers what they are doing is wrong and what kind of revolution they should actually be fighting for. And then, I mean, often they left disappointed afterwards because maybe the workers didn't share the same vision for the future or didn't want the same things as they did. I'm not sure if you would like to reflect on this a uh, little bit as well. No, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I feel like I'm painting sort of too good a picture of these <laughs> movements right now, perhaps. But yes, exactly. Um, such encounters produced, not surprisingly, uh, lots of conflicts as well. Um, and because people didn't behave the way they were expected to, um, right? So, and often it's the way that, you know, you had sort of more theory-driven, let's say, activists who called for, I don't know, radicalizing movements, occup occupying factories and so on. And people on the ground said, well, no, that's our lives that are at risk. Um, our jobs, well, well they, you know, they were striking, they were, they were already risking their jobs. But you know, one of the so big catchphrases of the 1970s was autonomy, right? And it's a bit paradoxical that, okay, then you have all these students coming to people and trying to explain to them what, what they should do. And they act autonomously and say, well, no. And I should say that this isn't, you know, my my, my big insight um, to see that people didn't, uh, you know, that, that such encounters produced conflicts. Activists were very much aware of that. And they were very, very critical and self-critical of um, exactly doing what you described, coming to factories, coming to, going to farmers, uh, going to residents, local residents, tenants, renters, and telling them what to do. And they realized pretty quickly and criticized that that such a such an approach wouldn't yield any results um so again that's something else actually that fascinates me about uh, you know the 1970s 80s how self-critical activists were or they constantly sort of asked themselves whether they reproduced the very powers they were um, trying to fight which makes it a bit tricky to write about them analytically because whenever you try sort of to analyze how they you know the fine webs of power in a Foucauldian sense, if you will, how they recreated certain pressures, how you how you had to act to be, I don't know, authentic, to be a good punk or whatever. And that this isn't just, you know, this isn't liberation. This has its own power dimension, which is, you know, what historians like to do to say, okay, they come across as all these big, um, you know, emancipating, liberating movements, and they are not that liberating. Well, yes, you're right, but activists already knew that. So it's a bit, okay, what can I actually add analytically if the, the activists at the time, and the, so at least the sort of more critical ones amongst them, pretty much thought, saw that already. It's a bit of a I don't know, tricky situation, let's say, as a, as a scholar. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, having experience with some activist movements myself, I can say that these reflections often take up most of the space uh, during the general assemblies like discussing uh, hierarchies, uh, relationships between different genders and sort of distributing roles, which is obviously a big question as well. So maybe to bring our conversation to the present a little bit now, I would say it's safe to say that we are currently experiencing a form of resurgence of similar movements that we saw emerge in the 1970s and that you discuss in the book. So be it the Me Too scandals, limited access to abortion or staggering rates of femicides, for instance, in Italy in the past few years, these all have significantly mobilized the women's movement uh, once again. Or the looming climate catastrophe obviously gave rise to Fridays for Future or the last generation groups. 
Then we have the Black Lives Matter powering the global justice movement, but also the resurrection of peace movements uh, in response to the war in Ukraine or even Gaza right now. So what inspiration do you think these contemporary movements are taking from those that you discuss in your book and what is different about them? I suppose that in a way, I'm also coming back to your own questions, which you posed to yourself at the beginning of your book, asking about what can we learn from this history of insurgents and why does it matter for our world today and in what ways? Yeah. Um, well, first, I'm a bit hesitant about the resurgence um, of protesting because it sort of implies that we saw less protesting in you know, whatever years between. And it seems to me, I don't know, in the 90s, there were the late 1990s, early 2000s, there were the big protests against global summits, um, tens of thousands meeting at Genoa, for example. Um, there were huge protests around in the financial crisis then in the, the mid 2000s. At every moment in time, you find the one big, uh, several big movements. And if you look closely, people take to the streets sort of all the time. Or oh, when the second Iraq war, whatever the post 9/11 wars, Iraq war, 2003 Iraq war started, millions took to the streets. It was a pretty short-lived uh, movement, if I recall correctly. And I recall from back then there were, you know, all the, the press was full of of articles about oh the peace movement is reviving and peace movement is coming back. It didn't, but bluntly. So I'm a bit hesitant here. I should say, however, that. I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at these current day protest movements with an interest, but I'm no longer really part of them. So, and I'm not studying them extensively. So, I need to say all of that with quite a bit of caution because maybe I just don't know them well enough. That might very well be the case. But what I do find from you know what I see at least uh, different, uh, what is different in my impression at least, is that I don't quite see these protesting scenes that you can see in the 1970s, 1980s, that they were really in the 70s, 80s, there were you know, subcultures with their own numbers, magazines, local magazines, tons of local magazines circulating um, that created what some people have called a counter public and that connected people, that connected different struggles. And maybe that does exist. Why I'm not sure whether TikTok or Instagram can recreate such a counter public sphere. It seems to be too fragmented to me. That's my impression that these sort of protesting scenes with their own styles um, of clothing that, you know, the 70s, 80s, you could sort of identify by how people looked, um, by the kind of dresses they were wearing, by the kind of clothes they were wearing, that they were somehow involved in, in, in these scenes. My impression is this uh, that there are such protesting milieus that say is no longer quite the case, at least not to such an extent. And the other thing is that what has changed, it seems to me, is this spirit of, well, let me, let me actually tell an anecdote to, to back up the, the point that I just tried to make. I went to one of the Black Lives Matters protests in Berlin, I think it was in 2020, which was huge and impressive. And I was like, wow, lots and lots of young people. But it also felt like a very momentary thing that exploded. And it made me hopeful, but I, I'm not sure how much it lasted. Fridays for Future, they lasted longer. Though I recently read an interview, it was a bit didn't make me particularly hopeful with one of the German activists of, of Fridays for Future, and she said basically the last climate strike, two thirds of the participants, the global participants, two thirds of these came from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So it seemed the way she presented it was that it's 
it lost its sort of global or its global dimension has been very much reduced, um, which is a sad thing to hear. Not sure whether she's right or wrong. Yeah, maybe Fridays for Future are more of a lasting thing. My impression again is if I look at you know the the anti-nuclear power movements in, in the 70s, 80s, um, with you know that that squatted and high construction sites where people really lived their lives in these scenes, they did way more than just going to demonstrations once a week. That seems to have, at least it's my impression that it has become less so. And quite physically in a way, the spaces that are available for experimenting with different lifestyles, for example, have shrunk. So, you know, in the 1980s, it was possible, even right after the wall came down, it was possible to squat lots of empty buildings. And right now, again, speaking from a Berlin perspective, they simply don't exist anymore. So finding the physical spaces to experiment, to try out different forms of living, that seems to have disappeared. And it reminds me of, one of, of what one of my students once said, that nowadays, sort of whatever you say once is recorded for eternity on social media. So this sort of you know experimenting, making mistakes, and perhaps learning from these mistakes, or perhaps not learning from these mistakes, and then you know trying again and trying to figure it out, this seems to have become much more difficult. That's what my students said. And you know, in a in a situation where everything matters for your career, where where every where you, at least students had the impression that every single thing that it in their lives mattered for the, their CV, the sort of space for, for for trying out things seems to have shrunk. Again, I'm not sure whether that's true, but that's the impression that I also got from from talking to students, and it made me thoughtful in a way that did inspire me to write this book because then you know have that courage to do some imagination. It seems to have become more difficult and indeed when i you know when i look at some of these protest movements right now i think last generation they come across as just utterly serious and okay the matter they're addressing is utterly serious um so perhaps that's the right approach but there's nothing joyful in the kinds of protests uh, they're staging and okay fair enough you know the, many of these anti-nuclear power uh, protests or peace movement protests in the 1980s they were all about fear and they weren't particularly joyful either, but they were lots of moments of joy. Think of uh, Cranham Commons in the UK that I discussed where, where women, you know, erected various protest camps outside a military air force base where, where nuclear weapons were stationed. And these became spaces for, you know, trying out queer forms of living and quite joyous experiences for many of these women, when, you know, from, from what you read in the sources. And... At least that is my impression again. I would be happy to be proven wrong that many of these movements right now, I don't quite see this, you know, joyful, experimenting, exuberant way of imagining something else, put in very sort of vague words. But that's where I feel there's a bit of a difference and why it's worthwhile looking to the 70s, 80s to perhaps regain that courage to experiment a bit more. But again, maybe I'm proven wrong, maybe I'm wrong and be happy to be proven wrong on that one. I think that we would need an entire conversation just to try to go deeper into this, because I think there's some truth in the sense that perceivably there are fewer opportunities for experimentation. Also in terms of just the general precarity of the youth, you know, you can't really afford to just suddenly disappear from your life and join some kind of commune or a protest camp or things like that anymore. At the same time, I don't know, I agree with this overall pessimism. I'm currently based in Italy and I can really say here that there is still a very thriving civil society culture. 
there are a lot of uh, spaces for experimentation, including, you know, various feminist spaces or even squatting and occupation of buildings is still fairly common in here. So there's a lot of cultural centers and areas that are involved in uh, the neighborhood and community building activities, sort of trying to fight for accessibility of housing and other issues. So I would say that there's still a lot of things going on. I do agree, though, that Fridays for Future, I think, has so far been one of the most successful movements when it comes to recent mass mobilizations. If we spoke about the influence on lifestyle choices, so in terms of what people are wearing, how they identify who is part of the community and so on, I guess I would agree that maybe that has moved more to the digital sphere compared to a few decades ago, potentially. Not necessarily platforms like Instagram or TikTok, though, but more like Discord, for instance. There is definitely a bigger growth of more fandom-based spaces where you really foster these online communities and create completely new, basically digital-first subcultures. Maybe I'm just a bit nostalgic for the times I'm studying, um, but it, you know, if these things are happening, I'm, you know, I'm glad to hear it, basically, that there are still spaces for experimenting and there are still thriving um, scenes. Maybe I'm just getting too old to be really part of them. Um, sometimes I try, you know, again, in, in a German context, I try to figure out you know, what magazine, what, what stuff should I read to get a sense of what lefties are thinking about uh, nowadays. And it seems to be very difficult um, just to get a sense of that, you know, common point of, points of reference. But again, if that's, if that's happening, you know, perhaps then still look into the 70s, 80s can be inspiring to do more so and you know maybe to still see okay what what kind of stuff did people in the 70s 80s do how did they go on strikes um and so on if there's still something there to be even if it's only this spirit of trying out things that that can be inspiring mm, i think it's i think it's both inspiring but also sometimes you know disheartening to see that the topics movements we're dealing with in the 70s 50s are even 20s and earlier are sometimes still quite pertinent nowadays and often not that much progress has been achieved, unfortunately. So I can imagine how tiring and discouraging this must uh, often feel for movements. But yeah, you were saying before that you feel some kind of lack of this sort of more joyful atmosphere that was typical of some of the older protest movements. This is actually something I found to be one of the strongest uh, passages in your book. It was exactly, you know, these moments of freedom, joy, communal laughter, be it in the middle of female environmental occupations in the UK or just playing music and sharing stories during strikes or the humorous uh, stunts by the Orange Alternative. I felt like it was precisely sort of these moments of turning the world upside down and this festive carnivalous atmosphere where we saw the glimpses of this better world that the activists were striving to create. However, aside from your mostly sympathetic outlook when discussing these cases, you also caution the reader to take these, you know, often utopian conceptions with a grain of salt. So to sort of conclude our conversation, I wanted to ask, how would you advise the readers to approach your book and what should they take away from it? Yeah, that, as, as you just said, um, to be inspired, uh, to imagine and be inspired, uh, you know, to have the courage to try out different things and not to accept that there are no alternatives. I think that was 
a sort of slogan in the post-financial crisis world. Perhaps it's a slogan again. Maybe I should read, that uh, it's sometimes depressing reading the news right now. But to, yeah, even if they seem utterly utopian, to have that courage and to try it out and to question things in, in everyday lives, not just to see, you know, big politics, big political structures, neoliberalism, and so on, but to look into sort of the, the details, as it were. And at the same time, to be cautious, to take a break and reflect on how, you know, trying to build a better world, trying to build live a better life, how that can result in, yeah, recreating power structures and how that can result in very frustrating experiences. To give maybe an example, right, in the in this commune movement in the late seventies, eighties, number of students moved into communes because they felt that uh, living alone in large cities would be utterly depressing, or living this conventional family family life was just you know plain boring and reproducing patriarchal power structures and so on. So they looked for alternatives and communes, not in you know, not in the sense of you know twenty thirty people living on a farm, but just shared apartments. But nowadays it's very common amongst students, perhaps less so in Italy. I think in the UK, in Germany, it's utterly common. Nordic countries, I think so too, that people just live together. Um, often for sort of 20s to 30s, that's the common age now, it's even for, for older people. And so in the 70s, people come, sort of associated with communes, spread radical visions of a different life, um, right, of doing things communally rather than uh, on their own. And that might include raising children, right, that children should be, shouldn't be sort of their parents' property, as it were, um, but you know, all the adults living in a commune, um, in a shared apartment, effectively, should be involved in raising children. Children shouldn't just have, like, you know, one point of reference, one person was, or two people, their parents, who would be responsible for them. And that does, sounds like a nice idea, doesn't it? Um, that, you know, if you have se several people who look after you, so you can do your homework, who play with you, sounds great. Reality was, perhaps quite predictably, that other adults, they moved into a commune, into a flat, stayed there for a year, or maybe for two years, then uh, moved out um, because they wanted to live with different people. Children had just, uh, you know, come to know these um, adults. They had made a personal, built a personal connection, and suddenly they were gone. Or people who were not uh, the kids' parents, well, you know, going out for a drink is certainly more attractive than you know, changing diapers at night. So they were like, oh, okay, I have to go to the, I want to go to a bar, get drunk. So perhaps quite predictably, it was the biological parents who usually ended up looking after the children. Didn't have to be that way, but also often that's the way it happened, apparently. And I guess, you know, being aware of that, you know, when, when it comes to everyday life, okay, it sounds like, you know, really nice alternative, perhaps some at least for, for conventional family life to get more people involved in looking after children. It, takes away some of the burdens for, for biological parents, above all mothers, no doubt, if more people are involved. And if that works, that's great. I don't want to doubt that for a second. But one should be aware that these are often, you know, things don't quite work out that way. And I think having a bit of caution when it comes to these sort of grand hopes for different lives and then questioning them, or questioning how that plays out in reality and ask why why, didn't, why doesn't it play out the way it did? And what could we could we perhaps do differently to make things actually work and having that sort of reflective moment and you know seeing things that aren't as rosy and as beautiful the title of the book is beauty is in the street 
there's also a lot of ugliness, if you will, in the book. And having a sense of that ugliness, um, you know, of how political disagreements over some arcane differences in Marxist theory can destroy entire, you know, deep friendships, or that can be deeply divisive. That's also also something to be keenly aware of. And I think having this courage to imagine alternatives, to try out things, but also being careful and reflect on why things go wrong, I think that's perhaps how people, what, what I hope people will take away from the book. I think that's a great note to finish our discussion on and to bring back this more sort of holistic approach, which portrays the movements in their complexity. So thank you so much for this highly inspiring talk and uh, for agreeing to come to our podcast, Joachim. It was a big pleasure. Pleasure was my, on my side. Um, it was really nice talking to you. I think it was really, the questions you asked um, really went to the heart of the book. So I was very pleased uh, to engage in the discussion with you about um, you know, why I wrote the book and what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish with it. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that. So today I have been talking with Joachim Haberlin about his fascinating new book, Beauty is on the Street, on European protest and countercultural movements. I recommend everyone to pick it up and find some inspiration in it. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our conversation about it today. Please rate this podcast in your streaming platforms if you liked it and follow us on social media and on our website for even more content. Thank you.